Hi everyone, I'm Tiffany Xinyuang, the president and co-founder of Oasis Consortium. Today, I'm really excited to share with you our wrap-up of season one of the Brand Safety Exchange podcast. Throughout the 18 episodes of this season, we gathered unique yet diverse perspectives from thought leaders and practitioners within the world of brand and user safety. They come from brand agencies, digital platforms, and governments. It has been a true privilege to launch this podcast with them. We discussed subjects like providing digital safety for children. Fighting human trafficking through technologies, diversity and inclusion in the gaming industries, the ROI of online safety, building trust and safety programs from the ground up, and more. Now let's find out what they had to say. We heard from Joe Silk of Roblox about providing a safe digital playground for kids. We're actually、um, starting to see an awakening by consumers, and and they're coming to the realization that like cool integrations and slick user interfaces aren't enough to keep users anymore, right? So if you can't make them feel safe giving you their data,、um, if they can't trust you, they're going to go elsewhere. And I want to make sure that we can create a place in the metaverse in this digital environment where. Kids can go and explore with those those boundaries and those social norms that we need to create, and then so that's one of the、uh, big initiatives for us is we try really hard at Roblox to not focus so much on punishment and and saying hey you violated our rules and and go take a time out that kind of thing. We are trying to shift to more of an educational response and saying hey maybe that isn't the nicest thing you know the nicest way to respond maybe maybe there's a better way to say what you want to say and kind of. Teaching those those social norms at a young age and understanding what is acceptable and what is not acceptable in the digital environments. Yes, there's there's this layer of anonymity that you know between your computer screen, my computer screen, and yours, right? But that doesn't that doesn't make it okay to act inappropriately, and and that's something that、um, you know, we take very seriously that that responsibility of of helping to teach our users and and frankly our our communities moving forward. Wei received a masterclass in building communities with Lan Fan from Community of Seven. If we don't deal with keeping the internet safe, safe of racism, sexism, misogyny, propaganda, hate groups, it's going to flourish. And quite frankly, our democracy is at stake. I know that seems kind of like a hyperbole, but I really do believe that our democracy is at stake. Our communities and families are being ripped apart because of the internet. Civility is jeopardized, and I think that's probably one of the most important reasons why brand safety is so important today. It's, it's our civilization. We learned how to promote a more diverse and inclusive gaming industry with Emma Boudin from the French Embassy in the U.S. Understanding that development is not exclusively about economic growth, but it encompasses human, personal, and cultural development. And culture is a way of life; is part of your identity. And you cannot build a sustainable world if you do not recognize cultural diversity. And promotion of cultural diversity is really important. Is key. Why? Because if you have a global vision of sustainability, you can ensure brand safety. 
because you will be able to generate a diverse ecosystem. And this is really important uh, considering brand safety because you need to create safe spaces in which all the people will recognize themselves and will feel that they can take part in the conversation. We discovered what it is like to be accountable for 250,000 communities with Brendan Ria from Fenden. Having trust and safety be an extension of, of even your company values too is really important. It's like the marketing angle of you know, living up to how you talk about yourself externally, that's important, but you have internal customers as well. And if you're coming out with a certain policy, and regardless of how well-intentioned somebody wants a policy to be, regardless of how, let's say, nonpartisan you may feel you're going into it, there's going to be somebody who accuses you of some sort of bias. Like, I kind of just accept the premise that somebody's going to say I'm being too liberal at some points. Um, but if you can clearly demonstrate where it's rooted in kind of the DNA of your company, I think the better off you are. Like, I, one of our values at Fandom is we bring joy. So when I think about what the policies that, are, that we're going to, to have uh, and how we're going to evolve them over 2021, I look at something like, you know, we're a platform called Fandom. It's about pop culture. Sure, you know, somebody may feel that they can get into a debate about Trump versus Biden or something, but how is that bringing joy? They may, like, two people may have fun arguing with each other, but everybody around you is rolling your eyes and saying, I don't want this on my community. So I think really rooting it into not just your brand story, but your corporate values is a really important piece of the puzzle. We understood why and how to drive safety innovations for a dating platform with Jeff Cook of the Meet Group. Trust and safety really is core to, I would say it's in our DNA from our earliest days starting in 2005 even. And so what it comes down to is really a a series of kind of human and algorithmic uh, approaches. We've found that it's helpful to um, have a, a strike system, right? So the problem isn't just to remove bad actors because some people just don't know where the line is. So, so there's an education aspect to, to giving someone a strike that actually has a reason so that, um, you know, it's not just like, uh, okay, you got a strike, you don't know what, what it was about. I think that's critical. You know, you got to give people some sense of what's going on. And if someone does report abuse, you know, a human will actually look at it within a minute to see if it, if it violated anything. It's also helpful, and we worked in coordination with some third parties like the Online Dating Association and others around a clear content and conduct policy, like what is and is not against the rules. Users don't generally read a lot of these policies, but we, we tried to condense it to like four bullets that we make you agree to every time you stream. We make it clear what the, the policy is to anyone who would like to read it. And then we enforce it through our, through our moderators. Safety and, and content moderation is the never-ending commitment, right? Like it's a, uh, the, the things that you can do automatically and algorithmically continue to expand. We heard from Roger Show German of Pandora on what to do to tame the wild west of audio content. 
think we're in a really interesting time right now where audio means a lot more than it did a few years ago with a rise in voice technology and audio assistants and the amount of people listening to streaming music and podcasts growing so much um, day by day that we're, I think we're in this, what I like to call the audio renaissance. We're, we're moving to a world now where we're increasingly engaging with voice and, and audio um, on a daily basis. And I, I truly believe it, it's becoming the main form of human interactivity for society. So I think that it's a really interesting time for, for brands to figure out how to play in this space because traditionally audio used to mean just radio and now it means so many more things. We learned what the ROI of online safety is with Reggie Yadif of Agora. Safety in a safe environment cultivate openness. And when they cultivate openness, they create this environment where people are happy to participate in, in conversations and they feel safe. So once you create that safe environment, people will go back to the app and do more, or people will go back to the game and play more, and people will go back to that social forum they like so much, and instead of just listening in and hide, they will openly talk and participate. And now what you're basically achieving as a developer of apps, for example, we talk to a lot of them every day, is what they want is traction on their app. They, they want noise. They want to be recognized, right? So when the environment is safe, you are actually going to get that effect. And all of this, if I may talk about metrics here, all of it translates into metrics like DAU, MAU, net expansion, all of those metrics that people like to talk about, they are a manifestation of how safe and how nice the environment you provide to users is, right? That's the essence of safety in my opinion. We received knowledge on how to build a business case for sustainable media with Angela Johnson and Chris Doffler of Dentsu. The evidence is clear that if you are a company that is purely focused on growth, then yes, you may well grow, but the evidence is you will not grow as fast as companies that are balancing growing for growth and for good. And the companies that are succeeding, like the P&Gs of this world, they're not doing it just because their consumers are demanding it. They're doing it because it's uh, it's the right thing to do and it's and it's actually translating into business success. So yes, they absolutely are listening to their consumers and they're enacting a lot of great initiatives. And they come to us to help them with that because they are asking, what are other companies doing? How do we succeed? How do we how can we put ourselves into a place where that, you know, when the consumers come asking the questions, what are you doing with my data? What are you doing with anybody's data? Where are you getting that data from in the first place? How are you storing it? What are you doing with it? Or how are you sourcing your products? And how are you creating your advertising? And what it, they're, they're pushing rightly and poking into every aspect of a company's ecosystem into the way that they do business and how they source everything. And enlightened marketers are are having the answers ready and they're pushing their own companies to make sure that this is a really important topic so i think my key word when we talk to clients is vigilance you can no longer create a block list and leave it sat there for a year you know you you, you constantly have to be listening and, and vigilant about how things are moving on and changing in the world and and making sure that you've got that human overlay to often what a lot of the algorithms and the, and the data and the systems are doing and making sure that that human component is making the right ethical choices. 
Yeah, and actually I'll add something onto there. I think privacy is not the obstacle to understanding a consumer. It's actually a window, right? Because if you understand your, your consumer's privacy concerns, you understand their vulnerabilities, you can reach them in a much in a way that is is true to what they're looking for. And at the end of the day, marking is, is about bringing people what they want, right? And, it, and is showing them, is helping them make wise decisions. And so we want to help them make wiser decisions rather than just bombard them. Uh, and so we know that brands want to do that too. And so long story short, I'm trying to get at is it's actually much more beneficial in the long run to the brand to be engaging these behaviors. And it's a little bit of a myth right now that we're trying to get over that, that it's not as profitable to do this because it's, it's anything but. We heard from Cheryl Ghosting from IAB about the unintended dangers of keyword block lists. The unintended outcome of these, like, we don't want to be around and anything that's this word, this word, or this, and the implications that was having. And that was really affecting a lot of the small business, minority-owned properties inadvertently because there's certain language issues too, like things that are common language that you would find in more urban type of cultures were things that were getting blocked on block lists, but it's common language on more multicultural type sites. And therefore, really good, clean, vetted content was getting blocked. So now what we're seeing is with the help of AI and machine learning, they're scanning the page for context. So that will help a lot. I think、uh, you know that those kind of technologies will prevent those unintended incidences. We learn about brand protection through the lens of user safety from David Hall, Jeff Cook, Angela Johnson, and Amit Shetty, leaders respectively from Lego, the Meat Group, Dentsu, and IAB. One of the things when you're thinking about risks online is that. For sure, you can plan for a whole bunch of risks, but it's the ones that you haven't necessarily planned for that come in from the side are the ones that are going to really create the the challenge for the brand. And that's why, sort of, at the Lego Group, we do take this very sort of precautionary,、um, very safety first approach.、Um, and, and the way that we would be looking at、um, any of our sort of digital activities is from a, a number of different perspectives. We've got to always remember that. Um, online engagement and digital engagement, especially for children, is a massive opportunity,、um, and it's something that, as a brand, we want to be sort of nurturing and and、uh, building upon.、Um, but at the same time, we have to be doing this in this responsible way. So for us, when we look at、uh, some of the risks, anything that has child safety, any kind of Remote risk on child safety would would sort of mean that we wouldn't be engaging in that particular opportunity.、Um, when it comes to sort of brand safety and commercial、uh, opportunity and our ability to to sort of engage children in a way that is really really meaningful, from the brand perspective, we can be a little less、um, uh, restrictive. But you know, it's that child safety thing that is the thing that keeps me up at night. There are a number of solutions for various companies in brand safety, but from an industry point of view, something that I think is relevant to everyone 
uh, and, and really regardless of what perspective you're coming from, uh, whether it's a brand, an agency, a, a publisher, or, or what have you, I think the key part that I, I definitely advocate is transparency, right? So, uh, and what I mean by that are, are a couple of things, like, uh, you know, having that consistent language to describe content, having transparency on who you're working with, uh, th th these are things which have been a little lost and now is getting more and more important to uh, address both brand safety and ad fraud for that matter. Just being having a clear uh, understanding of, of all the people that you're doing business with. We gain a deeper understanding about the high stakes of player safety with Paul Snyder of Riot Games. I think the most critical part is understanding what your users, your players, uh, your gamers, what their experiences are and bringing a, a sense of empathy to what would you want your experience to be like? And I think that when you start to look at the various uh, types of companies that play in this space, particularly in tech, that there have been multiple different directions that a trust and safety type function has developed. For Riot, that came out of that, the development of, the, of this area came out of the way that people were interacting with each other and in-game communications. And so that was really the first focus back in the uh, early days. What we've recognized is that there is a, is a huge opportunity and strength that comes from kind of stepping back away from the experience that has happened to thinking about how did these individuals come together. And so when I look at sort of safety from that perspective of how do I bring different people together? How, how do I expect that they're going to interact with each other? What are the ways that they will maybe develop a rapport, uh, develop a sense of some sort of a sense of a relationship, maybe make, make friends? It's about thinking about that experience and, and coming at it a little bit from a design perspective, a little bit just as a human. We learned how to build a trust and safety program from the ground up from Eva Muggins of Wildlife Studios. I think the first step is to always think about how your feature is going to work. You know, is it going to have any form of user generated content? And if it is, well, what is that user generated content? Is it going to be image sharing? Is it text chat? And then think about how each of these features could possibly be used for abuse. And you really need to let your imagination stretch as wide as possible here because Bad actors can be very creative, so we need to be more creative than them. And I think the second step I would recommend is to build out a list of each risk that you came up with, along with a possible solution on how you could mitigate those risks. And I'd really recommend that you would share what you came up with with those who have actually direct involvement with the creation of the feature so that they can get a good picture of how what they're building could potentially be used for harm. And, you know, you'd be really surprised, you know, that the developers of the feature might never have imagined that it could be used in this way. So I think the education part is very important. So I guess that would be my advice. And it might sound simple, but sometimes I think that the most simple things can actually be the most effective. We dived deep into the value of privacy in a digital world with Robert Cunningham, Greg Kidd, and Alisa Hupnick, leaders from Catch, Global ID, and Kelly Dry and Warren. 
privacy has been attempted to be elevated to a human right in Europe in, in their European bureaucratic way. In the United States, privacy has never been recognized as a human right as far as in a commercial context, as far as I can see, because in the U.S. with terms of uses that are essentially terms of adhesion, you basically have the right to sign away your privacy rights. It's kind of like a right-to-work state where you basically makes it really hard for a union to operate. But the types of terms of use that we have in the United States mean that like right out of the door, people are just waving their privacy rights goodbye. There's an attempt to carve that back through legislation. But in the United States, I used to think like it was the uh, Ten Commandments, then the Bill of Rights, then the Constitution. But in the United States, the way things operate is terms of use are elevated above everything else, including common sense. And privacy rights, as far as I can tell, have been shredded in the United States. And in that sort of environment, the U.S. has clearly put contract rights ahead of privacy rights. And the attempt of states to start to carve this back on a state-by-state basis really you know, shines a spotlight on the fact that at the federal level, at the national level, there is not a point of view in America that's held across political persuasions or even non-political persuasions as to like who owns what in America regarding your identity. I think it's also one of those things where, yes, potentially less data in the short term, but smarter use of your data. And it reminds me of when security really came on and you could either deal with it by ignoring it, but you'd pay the consequences. And I think we're just at that phase now with privacy. It's coming. You're going to have access to less data unless you're investing in the future, unless you're investing in your brand recognition, your relationship with the customer. I think the challenge is going to be a small and medium-sized business. How do you then reach your audience? And that's that's innovation. We're going to try to solve that. And I don't think we have all the pieces laid out yet for that solution. I think that there has been a real haves and have-nots consequence of regulations like GDPR. Anything that's strenuous and high overhead, as I suggested at the outset, has really divided you know, the 10, 20, 50 companies that can devote the resources to knock this compliance out of the park. And those that can't. And so as with so many things in our culture these days, it seems that this value of data as a human right is being respected and represented at the top tier of the economy, but less so at the bottom. And it just so happens that the companies that can take the best advantage of this personal data are the ones that present the most transparent welcome mat, as it were. If you really do take compliance seriously and enforcement forces you to take compliance seriously, then it may be that getting out of the third-party data game makes rational sense, perhaps to your satisfaction, Greg. Getting out of the third-party data game and when Google makes the third-party cookies go away, maybe it makes sense to just not be doing it anymore and move, like Google, for example, to taking advantage of what you already have in your back pocket and, and focusing on innovation, as Alyssa says, or focusing on the advantage this, that some of these platforms started from. Google is, is moving away from the third-party cookies in Chrome into the federated learning of cohorts, the flock technology, where they are basically going to take advantage of the treasure trove of first-party data under the guise that that's safer. So what am I saying? I'm saying part of how we get from here to there is the law and enforcement of the law, and these laws will make it painful enough to be violators of privacy and transparency such that new solutions to these commercial problems are rational, not just poetically just. We heard from Arjun Narayan of Kuaishou Technology on why fighting online abuse is a cat and a mouse game. The people who are using the platform might have a very different view of the platform. 
compared to what you intend to as a as a as an owner of the platform, as somebody who is providing that service as a platform, right? And 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 that's a very true tension. How do you reconcile that? Or how do you reconcile the tension between what your how your users use the platform versus maybe how a certain jurisdiction governs in, in, in that jurisdiction, right? Again, how do you reconcile cultural taboos? Very, very, in, and, and what people don't realize is a lot of the societal fault lines manifest on digital platforms. It's not like the fault lines were never there. They were always there. It's just, you, you, you start to see them differently. We listened to Neil Thurman from the Brand Safety Institute about the evolution of brand safety. The industry, I think, took user experience for granted a little bit. And so that entered it, you know, oh, what can we do to get people's attention? Well, without thinking too much about the notion that getting their attention might also annoy them and inspire them to download ad blockers and things like that. Certainly fraud and piracy and malware and things like that are always unintended, but you know, the, the holes in the supply chain and the, the, the frailties of it at, at various points in its evolution, you know, made, um, you know, made for opportunities for bad actors. And as, as the money at stake in digital advertising got bigger, um, you know, that became an unintended consequence that, that fraud and things like that were happening at scale. We learned how Nick McKinley is fighting human trafficking with technology through his nonprofit intelligence organization, Deliver Fund. There's not enough law enforcement officers and not enough prosecutors to be able to find every human trafficker and be able to prevent every potential victim from actually becoming a victim. So we realized that we needed to start working with private industry because the major majority of that supply chain that you spoke of is actually under the control of the of commercial companies, of, of private industry. So we started working with private industry and we found that to be very effective because every human trafficker that gets kicked off a gaming platform is a human trafficker that cannot communicate with a potential victim. It's very important for us to distill this down to its, its, its foundational principles. When you look at the equation of human trafficking, you cannot have a human trafficking victim if you do not have a human trafficker. It's the common denominator in the equation. Without it, the whole thing falls apart. So that's why we focused on getting human traffickers put in jail. But now we're focusing on helping private industry keep human traffickers from leveraging their platforms because there's liability for brands around this. Um, there are plenty of uh, legal cases actually right now where you've got human trafficking victims who are being, who are suing hotel chains, uh, software companies. Uh, they're, they're suing these companies because their argument is that they, those companies facilitated, albeit unwillingly, but facilitated the crimes that happened against them. We heard how Roy Goldberg of OpenWeb is elevating the good by creating a space for safer online conversations. For us, when we started to focus on not only blocking the bad, but also to incentivize and promote quality, 
really understanding why people are about to create something that is toxic and um, offering other incentives to them and making that transparent to them. Incentivizing that starting the beginning is probably the biggest thing that we should have done earlier, retrospectively. Um, and not only focusing on finding the hateful and unproductive conversation content, uh, which is insightful and toxic and eliminating that. That completely shifted our product, our performance, and the help to build online uh, healthier conversations. And lastly, to wrap up the season one, I had the honor to share the opening keynote I delivered for the Hue Tech Summit, the path to rebuild trust for the coming era of Web 3.0. In the coming decade, the other half of the planet will come online. We will only have increasing diversity coming online. We simply cannot really afford biased internet to welcome the other half of the planet to come online. For any brand and any platform who want to grow, and grow on an international and global customer and user basis, addressing the representation is very necessary. The three pillars to really address the challenge of the distributed net we're going to enter into. The privacy in the rise of IoT, the safety in the coming metaverse, and the representation in the semantic web. Those are the three pillars that I hope you can carry with you going back to every single conversation with your fellow leadership. Because as cybersecurity and cyber safety and the privacy professionals, we understand the trust. And in the coming web, trust is no longer compliance. It is a brand differentiator. It is a platform competitive advantage. And the boardroom has to recognize and understand that. Hopefully, some of these lessons will come back into your everyday conversations with your fellow safety, privacy, and DEI leaders. As Web 3.0 rapidly beckons upon us, it is mission critical that we restore trust in the digital world. Together, we can correct the wrongs and amplify the positivity of the web. So let us use these lessons wisely. We'll be back in the fall with season two. Stay tuned for new themes, new guests, and a new look. Subscribe to our newsletter to be the first to hear about it and to be a part of our movement. You can find us on Oasis Consortium on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you soon.